Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. On Saturday, it won't have escaped your notice, the first round of the 2020 Six Nations kicked off. So my guest today is Hugh Richards, sports history renaissance man, former rugby correspondent of the Financial Times and much, much more besides. Those listeners with a long memory will recall that Hugh and I chatted about the origins of the Six Nations last year, in episode 46 of Rugby Reloaded to be precise, when it was still the Four Nations. This time we're going to talk about the tournament in the interwar years, when it had consolidated as a Five Nations after France had been admitted in 1910. And, as we'll discover, the 1920s and 1930s were a controversial period for international rugby union, to say the least. So, welcome to the show, Hugh. Good morning, Sonny. Let's start with 1920. Despite the fact that, despite the fact of the toll of the First World War, when you look at the Five Nations bef- immediately before the war and immediately after the war, it's actually a, a remarkable period of continuity for English dominance of the Five Nations. Yeah, that's right. Clearly, there is a fair degree of discontinuity in terms of the individuals. Uh, England, like every other nation, has suffered very badly during the war. Uh, A lot of players um, have been killed. Paulton Palmer, most famously among the English. Um, Others have been wounded or have simply reached the stage where they're too old to carry on playing. Um, But a degree of continuity... uh, Jenny Greenwood comes back and becomes captain in 1920. Cyril is still around. Uh, but what you do have with England, in a sense, is a, is a, is a new generation um, spearheaded by Wakefield. And I think you could probably argue that in England's backs before the war are exceptional. Certainly in the sense of Port and Palm provides something, something fairly exceptional there. There's, but Wakefield, Voice, Cove Smith, that group of players who come in um, from 1920 onwards... And also the extent to which Wakefield thinks about the game, uh, give England a real edge in that period. And of course, it's shown in in the results that they um, they win the Grand Slams again in 21, 23 and 24. The only games they lose in that period uh, are games where they get caught in the mud at Cardiff and they get hammered. And, you, you know, there's two quite remarkable results in 20 and 24. But England, who are, sorry, 20 and 22, England, who are otherwise um, completely dominant really do get thumped. They concede eight tries uh, in 1922 at Cardiff. But certainly there was that pattern. In, in England just carry on more or less where they've left off. By 1910, when they win the, um, uh, the well, the, the home nations, let's call it, for, uh, to stop switching between four and five nations, it's clear that the England national team has recovered from the split of 1895 and there's a new generation it's a different generation that's come through as you said led by uh well particularly adrian stoop initially and then poulton palmer becomes the the symbol of the free-flowing back play of the uh, grand slam winning teams in 1913 and 1914 and then as you said what's interesting is that in the 19 so in the early 1920s the england team kind of regenerates and continues that success but from a completely different base whereby now They've become, and obviously people of the time, rugby union people of the time would hate to hear this, they've become much more professional. Thanks yeah, to the influence of, of Waverly Wakefield, who is a, uh, in a sense, is almost a captain coach of the England team and is a strategic thinker, moves away from the sort of loose, uh, laissez-faire type style play, much more organised. And kind of, so they've, they come into the modern age in the 1920s. Yeah, I think that's right, is that what happens and Wake, Wakefield 
um, I think to a very great, he, he, he does two things, I think, in many ways. He, obviously, he'd been in, he had, you know, he's, he's a smart guy. He introduced his own ideas. But what he does in many ways is he applies what they should have learned from the New Zealanders before the First World War, um, you know, is the extent which is, you know, there's a degree of specialisation. In England players become much more defined by position during that period than they had before the First World War. I found it, for instance, interesting looking at uh, the account, say, of a player like Dick Stafford, who the England player, um, who had an extraordinary career, uh, played for England as a teenager, died at 19 from spinal cancer. You actually read reports of games. You can't quite work out what position Stafford is, um, because it, he is simply a forward. Uh, by the 1920s, you've got specialisation, particularly you've got back row forwards, at which uh, Wakefield excels. And the, the idea that one of their tasks is to corner flag, which essentially is to go, go across and, and cover in the corners. So English rugby reaches a level of much greater sophistication, uh, which certainly carries England through, carries England well through the 1920s before anybody else catches up. And it's at that point after that is when um, Ireland and Scotland uh, actually, Scotland in particular, um, have un, have unusually fertile periods. But in, England obviously always has, England I think always has an advantage, particularly at this stage when the French really have still to get their act together. England has that example of numbers and resources. Uh, when the English get smart as well, everybody else has got a real problem. And I think it's interesting that the only team that really challenges them in that in the first half of the 1920s, apart from, as you say, the, the massive defeat by Wales in um, 1922, is Scotland. And uh, oddly enough, Scotland Scotland appear to have... So they win the, Scotland win the Grand Slam in 1925 in spectacular fashion. And they also seem to have moved away from their traditional playing style in that traditionally Scot- Scotland was all about forwards, particularly dribbling the ball, the famous cry of feet, Scotland feet. Yet by 1925, they've got this incredibly talented, uh, in, 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 incredibly talented collection of backs, and particularly in the three quarters. Um, so, for example, Eric Liddell, who uh, ran in the Olympics, is probably today most famous because he was portrayed in Chariots of Fire by Ian Charlton. So they've got this. So their style of play changes so that it becomes this free-flowing, uh, backs-orientated type of game. And one of the interesting things is that many of those three quarters aren't actually Scottish. Well, I think this is the, one of the interesting things about them is that they are, and it's actually, again, as often happens with rugby, it's fairly uh, passing phenomenon. And, of course, whether that three-quarter line would have come together at all um, had Eric Little not decided he wanted to prioritise his athletics in 23-24. But you've got that 1925 three-quarter line. They've all been at Oxford University, um, although I don't think they ever actually play together for Oxford, and three of three of them have been born out, born outside Scotland. Uh, the exception in the in, in the middle of all this is Macpherson. Macpherson comes from Newton Moor, which essentially is Shinty country. So they're a pretty exotic group of players, but they're clearly ex- of players of extraordinary talent. Macpherson is obviously a great creative centre, but otherwise, what you know, Wallace Wallace is a very fine winger, and Ian Smith is clearly something quite remarkable in that his scoring records last. I think um, Ian Smith remains the remained the highest scorer at prize in international rugby until he was overtaken by David Campisi, and his as we as we always have the problems of terminology, his five Six Nations record for try scoring I think has still only been overtaken by Brian O'Driscoll, and so Smith is this phenomenon. He scores 
he has one remarkable patch in 24-25 uh, where he scores eight tries in two games, including six. six um, he scores a hat trick in the second half of one game and the first half of the next. Um, he's obviously getting he's getting exceptional service from uh, McPherson. But on the other wing, you've got Wallace, who in 1925 scores in every game. That 1925 team is obviously it was almost like a comet. It sort of com- it comes obviously not out of nowhere, um, comes to a fair degree out of the southern hemisphere and an early concept of the kilted kiwi. Um, but and they and they meet England in 25 in one of the great games of, the, of this period, the, th- the game where Murrayfield is opened and Scotland are playing for the Grand Slam, England are defending it. Uh, and I think it finishes 14-11. It, you know, it is the, if you want to pick you know, the great games of this period, that match, which is the first match at Murrayfield, and the um, Scottish authorities are taken a bit by surprise because previously in the Leafs, 30,000 capacity has been sufficient. Uh, Murrayfield is, um, is tabbed for 70,000 and the place gets mobbed. Uh, but there is that period at which they, those, you know, Wakefield, Wakefield's England team and a truly remarkable Scotland team uh, you know, collide with each other. What I think is surprising today, particularly after all the uh, controversies over the past 20, 25 years over Granny Gate and uh, national qualification, a debate that's still going on now, um, the fact that Johnny Wallace uh, could play in that Scotland team and then come back two years later captaining the New South Wales Waratah touring team, that which is essentially a standing for Australia. And there was no, no questions were asked about this. And it's kind of a... Um, um, it points to a looser time and probably the idea that people from overseas were just as British as those born in Britain uh, was still very strong uh, and represented on the field in International Rugby Union. Yeah, well, I think it's it's possibly not totally coincidental, but this seems to be particularly strong after the two world wars in in the late late forties. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. England have extraordinary and. There is a sense there that if you've been, if, since if you've been fighting, if you've been fighting side by side in the wars, and also if you are attending an English university, so you get, since you see, so you've also got. Uh, uh, I can't remember to be honest how many of these guys actually were Rhodes Scholars, but you've got Ro- the Rhodes Scholarship scheme, which is enabling Australians and New Zealanders to come and study at um, at Oxford. Uh, but the, the, there is, I think, yeah, there are several things going on. There is a sense in which, you know, also Australians and New Zealanders at this time, particularly the middle and upper class ones, thought of themselves as British in exile. So therefore, it was perfectly reasonable that they could come and play for uh, Australian New Zealand. You've obviously had an earlier example of this with um, with, uh, with Fell, the um, New Zealand, the uh, an early Scottish New Zealander. Uh, who in 1905 refuses to play against uh, the All Blacks and his Scottish career at that st- uh, at that stage ends. So it's it's not totally new, but you've, what this stage you've got this sort of remarkable sort of confluence of talent, um, co- you know, co- coming coming through coming from um, the Southern Hemisphere, but but um, but also you know of Scottish descent. Other times, it tends to be England who are generally the beneficiaries. That's right. In the 1930s, in England, really do take advantage, particularly South African players, uh, to the extent that um, Tupion Smith, the South African fullback, who actually I think played international cricket for South Africa before he came to England, That's right, ends yeah. up captain in England. And of course, the other thing is, and you're right, there's there's a more general looseness. Um, you've got uh, about international qualification. I think it's one of those things. That it, I suppose it. Get, 
it's an aspect to some degree of of the game being amateur. It's not it's not regarded. You get disputes um, in the England Wales relationship. There's a history of disputes over people who play for Newport. Um, because uh, Newport is, I think, is generally regarded as a Welsh club. At this stage, I think you will find Newport is still technically in England. Uh, Monmouthshire's position, and also they're members of the RFU. Uh, right, still yeah. at this point, well, I think. So Monmouthshire's position, Monmouthshire's position is not clarified until I think about 1968. So it tends to be Newport players. You have people like um, Ernest Hamnett, who plays for England after the First World War, who actually gets picked for both sides. Yes, yeah, um, and. Is, and I think he's played amateur football already for England. Um, he's a Newport player. He says, well, actually, he'd really rather play for Wales, but England asked first. Um, so, therefore, he ends up playing for England. And there are one or two other... In, in you know, 1922, um, the record for the number of England players born in a single city, and one assumes this excludes London, is set. And it's three blokes from Cardiff, one of, yeah. one of whom then one of whom then in the great tradition of Welsh rugby players uh, signs for Rugby League and is playing Rugby League for Wales shortly afterwards. So there is, I think there's a much greater degree of fluidity about this at the time. And it's, it's yeah, it, it, the attitudes are just generally, I think, much more relaxed. It's sort of, I, mean, I, I mean, there's a slight parallel with debates today about herit- about players and heritage and playing for the countries of their parents or grandparents, that in those days there was a general sense that, well, we're all British, and that means that there's much more flexibility about which countries we actually um, uh, nail our colours to the mast up for. Um, and so there is that kind of, you know, when you look at um, the Pacific Island players, Polynesian players, and the, uh, or, for example, in rugby league, the example of Lebanon, where the Lebanese team uh, has huge numbers of um, people who were born and bred in Australia, but see themselves as Lebanese. Um, there's a kind of parallel as to, in a different, in a different way and in a different time, uh, to British and the, uh, as you say, people who view themselves as British in exile in the 1920s and 1930s. Obviously, one of the questions um, about the 1920s and the 1930s is Wales, because after dominating uh, the four nations throughout the early 1900s, they don't really make much of an impact. Uh, they win the championship what maybe three times I think, uh, but they, they don't do a great, they don't do a grand slam. And um, you know, one of the observable things about uh, Welsh rugby is and. And obviously, when one gets down to precise sort of cause and effect factors, become much more complicated. Is Wales roughly tend to follow the patterns of the Welsh economy, and because the Welsh economy, it's, and of course, it's very, very hard to think of it in these terms because you know, particularly South Wales has been associated with post-industrial decline for so long. Certainly, you know, with the living memories of almost anybody who's like to be listening to this now, um, is that Wales before 1914 is actually booming. Yeah, coal production, which is, I suppose, is one measure, reached the peak in 1913. And what happens in the 1920s is all of this goes into horrific reverse. Uh, the coal, uh, the coal um, industry starts to contract very rapidly. You get serious industrial disputes. Um, but what the, the big effect on Wales is actually people leave. Uh, more than 400,000 people leave Wales. Uh, between the two wars. Gwyn Thomas called it a black death on wheels. It's people leaving by train and they they wind up, um, our mutual friend Adrian Smith has made this point, a lot of them, uh, quite a lot, wind up in Coventry. 
and Coventry schools suddenly get a lot of Welsh schoolmasters um, who are interested in rugby. Of course, in rugby union, uh, the big effect here is rugby is, is players going to rugby league. And of course, it's your own work has shown that there is an absolutely unparalleled um, exodus of Welsh talent. Um, it's not always, in, you know, in more recent times, it tends to be perhaps players on the fringes, so you lose depth. Um, but at this time, the best Welsh players uh, disappear to uh, rugby league. Um, you know, maybe, you know they met very often if they you know, they may have had a few games, or in the most famous cases, those of Jim Sullivan and Gus Risman, uh, they don't get to play for Wales at all. So Wales has this huge loss of talent. Now, of course, England... Lose, always loses talent because the best players in, in Lancashire and Yorkshire, which are historically England's great nurseries, nearly all play rugby league. But for Wales, which obviously has a much narrower base, the loss of these players um, is colossal. And I think what also happens in Wales, I suppose several things happen. One is the effect of gravity, is that nobody goes on being as good as Wales were uh, before the First World War. Um, there's a sense, I think, of Welsh rugby, uh, whether again it's perhaps because, you know, this is the way we've always done things, uh, therefore we don't change them, um, of Welsh rugby getting left behind. So when Wakefield is performing English forward play, uh, Wales are still picking weirdly incoherent packs and very often scrum- you know, scrummaging in the order in which they arrive. And there's a there's a remarkable story in Roe Harding's memoirs of the chosen Wales eight being out scrummaged by six Cardiff policemen who simply being roped in for the task at a, pra- a practice session. So what, you know, what, Wales is in all sorts of disarray, um, but the roots of that are social. I actually went through the, the RFL uh, minute books to check how many players actually did come north. Um, and in the 1920s and 1930s, 392 players were regist- with Welsh addresses were we- registered as professionals. And I think of, of those, something like 69, I think Robert Gate calculated 69 were... Um, uh, were international caps. I mean, obviously, not all of them uh, played international rugby league, but you're effectively looking at four four international teams over the 1920s, and 1930s. The other interesting thing, which kind of got, runs counter to that argument, is that proportionally more signed between uh, 1920 and 1926 than in any other period in the interwar in the interwar years. I, I guess because there was a much more uh, in, much more social flux in that period. But yeah, and and also the other thing that seems to happen is that, in a sense, Welsh, because they lose, obviously most players, 99% of the players who go to play rugby league come from working class backgrounds, uh, partly because they can get jobs as well as play for a rugby league club. Um, Welsh rugby, for probably the only time, seems to become more reliant on Oxford and Cambridge players in the 1930s. I mean, most famously, Will Fuller. Uh, from Cambridge, so there's a kind of it, it, it's the team actually changes its social, um, its traditional social nature because of the the impact the economic depression has on on working class worlds in the 1930s. Yeah, I think well, I think obviously there are several things, but well, actually one thing which obviously is worth saying uh, from the earlier period is one one of the consequences of this obviously is an unusually uh, prosperous period for Welsh rugby league. Um, but going back to the point, yeah, of course, that's always that's always been there in the sense you've had, you know, you always did have uh, people like Nichols and Gabe who were middle class. Um, so Welsh rugby, I, I think the point about Welsh rugby union is it was always much more of a mixed 
But yeah, it's a cross. It's a genuine cross-class yeah. game. It's yeah. in, I, in the broadest sense, it is a people's game. It's not restricted yeah. to any particular class or section of society. Yeah. I, I think. What, yeah, what does happen? I think several things are going on here. Why is obviously there's there's there's, there's an attempt to um, organ, schools rugby becomes much more much more organised, and so and, and so of course, for instance, you, therefore you you get people you you probably get more people coming through who come from a background which they you know they can. Act they can actually afford to stay at school after the uh, statutory le- after the statutory minimum leaving age of fourteen. So I think the, the, it, again, there's, there's, there's a social context to this. Um, Walter Rees, who's there's some stories, but Walter Rees, who's the secretary of the Welsh Rugby Union, is famously indulgent towards um, blues, and there certainly is a bit of production line. I think at one point Wales actually do pick an entire. Um, three-quarter line of um, of Oxford and Cambridge Blues, and it became became known as the Educated Three-Quarter Line. Um, and the um, most of the rest of the team came from Clinetley, and after they'd been beaten by England, the Morning Post rather gloatingly comments that Oxford that Oxford and Clinetley proved not to be a very good mix. I think <laughs> I think you're you're certainly right about this. Um, You've got interesting people, I suppose, in the middle of this, like Watkin Thomas. Um, but Watkin Thomas is a graduate. He's a graduate of Swansea, um, who clearly manages to bring these rather disparate elements together in uh, in the 30s. Um, and then later on, Hayden Tanner. Um, Hayden Tanner is, who again, has, uh, I think, I think it was Swansea University. Um, and, of course, Tanner, of course, has a different pattern to his cousin, Willie Davis. Willie, of course, goes to Bradford Northern, ends up... Uh, becoming one of the great stars in rugby league, going on the forty-six tour. Uh, Hayden uh, stays in rugby union, um, becomes an officer during the war, and you know, is and and is recognised, I think, as you know, one of the great towering figures of Welsh rugby. As uh, you know, if Welsh rugby has a great succession, it's actually scrum halves, not outside halves. And Hayden Hayden Tanner sort of stands between Dickie Owen and. Uh, Gareth Edwards at the absolute peak of that, but I think you're right. Yeah, Wales Wales diversifies. What it doesn't clearly compensate for the losses. The other thing is that Welsh selection at this time is obviously a complete shambles, um, and it's the one period. Um, uh, I found this when I did my own research on the England Wales game. England routinely use more players than Wales and give more debuts. The twenties is the one period when the Welsh numbers move faster. So I think yeah. Well, I, yeah, you know, so Wales is in a difficult set of circumstances and doesn't handle it very well. You get um, things like you know, thirteen new caps in nineteen thirty-four, but before that, um, there's a year in the nineteen twenties when they pick thirty-five players, which is actually a pretty creditable go at um, the maximum sixty. Obviously, the other major uh, innovation of the nineteen twenties was France becoming a serious participant in the in the championship until. 1931, when the international board decides that it no lo- no longer wants France to play until its team and its crowds behave uh, um, in a better fashion. Uh, the um, the immediate catalyst for this was the 1930 game against Wales, which apparently was very violent. The crowd were um, uh, incensed at some of the decisions of the referee, and the uh, the international board, led by the RFU 
in some ways, use that as an excuse to break the links with France. But it seems to me there's something more going on here as well, that there's a kind of... There's still a feeling within the within British rugby union that the game is really a British one, and many people don't really like playing people outside of the British world, so to speak. And there's a kind of... I think there's a kind of culture clash going on between the French and the British nations at this point. I think what's interesting here is... Well, one, one thing, obviously, I think is that... Um, you know, a consistent pattern of rugby union is the people who ran rugby union actually never really wanted to expand it. You know, they were, there's, you know, there's a pattern almost everywhere of only wanting to play people like us. And you get expansion, it seems, um, you know, where the natives insist on playing and you know, more or less make, you know, more make it unavoidable. Um, whether, whether in part that in, I suppose the interesting question in this point is why are the French ever allowed in? But I suppose back in the early days, you've got people like Ernest Rutherford around who are British who represent the leadership of... Yeah, who was the secretary of the FFR, yeah. Um, so, um, but I, yeah, I think there's a point there. At the same time, I think there is genuine concern also within French rugby uh, that the game is becoming, there is, that the game is becoming violent, uh, that the elements of professionalism are actually going a bit far. But I think there's certainly always the case that the French are and remain outsiders. You think about the fact that the French don't get to be members of the international board until 1978. And one of the smaller indicators is who gets to be a referee. And you don't get French referees in uh, the Five Nations um, until well after the Second World War. I think it's a, I think it's at some point in the seventies you get the first French French referee, and as with all of these things, it is discovered that the sky does not fall, and they become accepted very rapidly. Um, I think what does happen, and one of the consequences of this, I think, is that the the nineteen thirties, I think, in terms of sort of rugby rugby memories, drop into a little bit of a memory hole. It, uh, it's it's it certainly looks like a less memorable period. There are things within it. Um, there's Obolensky, who, of course, is not a, is not a home nation. But the home nation itself becomes rather odd. You get huge variations in results. In the, the eight years that follow, um, Scotland win nine games, but they actually win two triple crowns in that. And you get the other bizarre discontinuity in 1938, when the 1930s are low scoring. Uh, 1938, you get an average of 30 points a game, which doesn't sound much now. But in a, in a sense, as if now, as if the, as if a modern uh, Six Nations, uh, you started routinely getting scores of over a hundred. So, but so, but I think it's it's had it's, you know, something is very clearly lost without the French. Whether it's simply you don't have that content, you know, there's one game fewer a year. But I, my sense is that the thirties, other than odd, you know, odd, oddity, odd moments like Obolensky, um, has kind of dropped into a sort of historical memory hole. Yeah, I think that's true. And again, I think you're right. It's something to do with the fact that the turn- there's no real consistency in the tournament in the 1930s. Like, there's, I don't think anybody wins it. Um, uh, wins it out? No, England win it outright twice. Oh, sorry, yeah, it's Scotland and England. Win. But it's kind of there's gaps between these. There's no one single dominant team. And in many ways, what's remembered from the, the, the as you say, the overriding memory is of British international matches in the 30s is uh, the Obolensky match and Britain's, uh, sorry, England's defeat of New Zealand. Uh, and also, as you've written about, the the um, the, um, the Wales match in 1935. So it's a, um, yeah, so the focus in, in the 1930s really is on the fact that Wales and England can defeat the New Zealanders. And that's the thing that's always remembered rather than anything else. Because as you say, the, the tournament in the 1930s becomes very... 
um, disparate and unpredictable and there's no single team or even player by and large who you identify with that period. Well, I think that's right. Is that, and Because there's a sense, of, you know, people, you've got Wooler. But it's interesting, if you read contemporary accounts of Wooler, um, Townsend Collins, who, you know, Townsend Holt Collins possibly has a disproportionate influence in in what in our concept uh, in our perceptions of these things because he actually because he wrote a book but I think it's a very good book is actually rather critical of Wooler as a player you know I think regards him as a, a a brilliant player but one who lacks judgment and he and he's one of those players who does lots of things himself he's not great at enabling other people uh, Wilson Shaw um, who is largely remembered I think on the strength of what one truly remarkable game. Um, in 1938 at Twickenham, but there is, there is quite remarkable. 33 to 36, each country wins the championship in turn, and I've got them in front of me. Scotland's finishing positions um, in that period: fourth, first, third, fourth, fourth, third, first, fourth, and both of those firsts are triple crowns. It's actually not what it's actually like, and I think there's been almost been nothing else like it until Wales. Um, in the that remember Wales had a very long period in the Six Nations where um, they normally finished bottom or near bottom. Every so often they would suddenly break out and win something. I think it's only in the last four or five years uh, that Wales have started finishing second or third. Wales had an enormously long period um, of which was largely one of failure. But they had the two thousand and five Grand Slam, the two thousand and um, 2008, 2012, which you know, c- come amid a pattern otherwise pretty much a failure, and Scott, you know, Scotland in the 30s, and, you, and I suppose it's one, one of the consequences of the um, the way the, the competition works, the fact that it's you don't play that many games, you play you basically and you alternate home and away, um, is yeah, you know, it, it's it's the randomness of small samples. And I think you know, at another level, it's one of the things that makes makes the competition rather fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, um, I think we'll leave it there because we're running out of time. So many thanks to you, Hugh, for another great discussion. And hopefully, we'll be back later in the tournament to talk about the historic rivalry between England and Wales. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow Hugh on Twitter. His name is at Hugh Richards 3, that's H-U-W Richards uh, numeral 3, and I'm at Collins Tony. And if you'd like to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can rummage through the complete archive of all past episodes of this podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening.